On the show today, I have Paul Weiser. Uh, he is a writer and an editor, and he joins us today. How are you, Paul? I'm very good, thank you, Evan. So uh, tell, tell us about you. I mean, you're obviously a very accomplished uh, person. You have several degrees from, uh, from different uh, high-achieving schools like uh, the University of Berkeley, uh, University of Chicago, Harvard Law School, and Cornell University. Um, tell, tell us about you and your background. Well, I was an undergraduate at Cornell. I went on to Harvard Law School, but I didn't stay there. I didn't finish that because I decided that wasn't the right profession for me. And I could see people were eating it up for breakfast. So um, I went back to literature and got my master's degree in English at the University of Chicago. And then I came out to Berkeley and got my PhD in dramatic art. And these days, I help people edit books and screenplays and doctoral dissertations. Those are the big three. But people come to me with all kinds of projects. And fortunately, for the past several years, most of my clients have been online. So this pandemic hasn't really affected me, thank God, um, financially. Good. And what would be, because I know you, you do talks like on metaphors and other other things, what would be your metaphor for this current uh, pandemic? <laughs> <laughs> My metaphor for this, well, you know, I've written a screenplay about, uh, it's based on a woman's true story that she came to me with. Uh, she drove across the United States in 1918 in a Model T Ford with a girlfriend. And uh, World War One was still raging, but the relevance to today is that the Spanish flu was raging, just beginning to get off the ground. And it's suddenly given my screenplay a new relevance because here we are with this pandemic, which is acting very much like the one in 1918. That one came in three waves. The first spring wave was bad, but the worst one was in the fall. And then there was one more in the winter. And um, San Francisco is, by the way, very good about it. Philadelphia decided to have a war bond parade and everybody got sick and many people died. San Francisco was smart and they listened to the doctors and didn't do that. Unfortunately, they thought the second wave was the last one and there was one more and then they got some people in San Francisco. But um, the screenplay is suddenly having a relevance I never anticipated. Yeah. So uh, what do you say to those who say this uh, this pandemic is is maybe overblown because when you look at the data, the numbers don't really reflect uh, anything like the Spanish flu. Uh, you know, it's that people are definitely dying, but maybe shutting down the, the economy isn't such a great idea. What do you think about that? Well, I was having that very conversation this morning with my beloved client in Utah. He's originally from New York. He's a very nice man. He's a Republican and he takes that point of view. I would be a little more cautious. Uh, we're dealing with a virus here that doesn't type politics. And um, if we start going back in and congregating close together, we might find ourselves very unhappy. Okay. On the other hand, there's this nice news about this new drug that's having promising results. So uh, maybe there'll be a miracle cure sooner than we think. Hmm. So do, do you think that people who, who believe maybe the pandemic is a little overblown tend to fall on, on the Republican side and those who take it more seriously tend to fall on the, on the more Democratic side? That's my impression. I was reminding my client this morning about the old Jack Benny routine. Yeah. 
But somebody comes up to Jack Benny and says, your money or your life. And Jack puts his hand to his chin and looks at the audience. And the, the criminal says, what are you doing? And Jack says, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> um, so I think my friend is thinking about uh, the economic consequences a little more than the health ones. Or also uh, the, the constitutional ones, uh, the freedom ones, possibly. Yeah, there's that issue, too. There's a lot of issues we're having to deal with, and this is going to have some profound impacts on our lifestyle afterwards, I'm sure. Do you think uh, things will go back to normal in a few months? Hard to say. Uh, some fields are going to be very heavily impacted. Education, I would think, would be one, at least at the higher levels, is going to be more... Uh, you know, with things like Zoom, where people are going to take courses online rather than sitting in classrooms. I think there's going to be a lot more of that in all kinds of directions. Do you think something is lost when, you, when you're not in a classroom and you're doing it through a virtual setting? Do you think there's a certain essence and a certain learning that, although maybe not verbal, it's definitely something to do with the environment? Oh, there's absolutely something lost. With me working at home where my commute is from my bedroom downstairs to my office upstairs, it has the advantage of no commute, but it also has the disadvantage that you can get cabin fever. Because, you know, aside from going out for food and gasoline, I spend most of my time in one place in my house. So... Um, what have you been doing to mitigate that? Well, actually... Um, I had to cut out two things, uh, mainly a film appreciation class that I was taking to get out of the house on Wednesday nights where we'd watch a film and then we'd discuss it. That teacher has switched over to Zoom. I haven't joined them yet. Uh, somehow it doesn't have the appeal to me to watch a movie by myself and then go discuss it with people on Zoom. <laughs> that's, actually, a- that's actually what I meant earlier by do you think there's something lost when you're not in a classroom is, is that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was that was I was coming back to your earlier point. That's exactly what's lost. That human contact is definitely a factor. Um, but as I say, my life hasn't ironically hasn't been changed that much. I go out fewer times once a week for food. I haven't I happen to have bought a lot of gasoline shortly before the crisis impacted. So uh, I don't need to buy gas. And where would I go anyway? So um the unknown factor, of course, is scary because we don't know if this is going to go on for weeks more or months more. I suspect months. How many months? Oh, goodness. Uh, if we have another wave the way we did with the Spanish flu, uh, this could go on through winter. And um, we have the history to show that that's the case, certainly with the flu. Paul, it almost seems like we're in a, uh, a Stephen King novel. What do you think? This is true. Uh, certainly unlike anything I've ever lived through. So and you've never experienced anything like this. This is like the first time you've ever uh, experienced this, this kind of lockdown, this kind of isolation of society? The only thing that comes close in my life experience was I happened to have been in Israel with my mother in 1973 when the Yom Kippur War broke out. And all of a sudden... Uh, from being on vacation, I was in a war zone in a country the size of my native state of New Jersey, where, you know, a jet plane could fly over from one end to the other in about 10 seconds. Uh, it was very scary uh, to think that um, I could be bombed out of existence, you know. Uh, I had never been in a war zone. Americans are not usually, unless the soldiers go overseas to join one. We're not used to being in a war zone since the Civil War, I guess. Right. 
And um, that's as close as I can come to what I'm experiencing right now, the isolation, the, the, the unknown, the anxiety. And certainly the, uh, the unknown of how other people will react when there are shortages of like meat and poultry and other things, if people start to kind of break away, like the, 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 the veneer of uh, civil society will start to break away. I think that's something that people are thinking about. Yeah, well, this uh, absolute absence of toilet paper and uh, hand towels, I've never seen anything like that. You go into a Safeway and the entire aisle is empty. There's nothing on the shelf. I've never seen anything like that since I lived for a couple of years in Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia, where they would get shipments of things, and when they'd run out, the shelf would be bare. Uh, but this is the United States of America. You're not used to that. Do you think there's a lot of writers out there isolated in their homes writing things and contemplating new novels? Very good point. Uh, we're going to have a baby boom in about nine months, that's for sure. And... Um, how about, a, the, how about a writing boom? I think we're going to have a writing boom, too. Uh, I'm as busy as ever. Some people think I should be more busy than ever. That hasn't happened yet. But um, writers calling me for helping them with their screenplays and novels and so on is just as good as it's ever been. So what do you have uh, planned for the future, like uh, in the near future? What kind of projects are you working on? Oh, well, I'm working this uh, this morning. I was working with a gentleman in Utah on his memoir. Tomorrow, I'm going to be working with a 90-year-old gentleman who wrote a novel about 10 years ago that he totally forgot about. But when his wife died, he suddenly remembered it. And his um, he's having a, a romance right now, a 90-year-old man having a romance with <laughs> a year old woman. And who happens to be a writer, she is, and he showed her the manuscript, and she said, hey, this is terrific, you should get this professionally edited. So I'll be working with him tomorrow. And um, there's a woman in Louisiana who's writing a history of her family with all kinds of uh, things that were written in the 19th century, which is fabulous to see how life changed so much in 100 years. And what people did for entertainment, like go shopping, you know, once a year, the kids would look forward to going into town to buy clothes once a year. I mean, it's like a different planet. It is a different planet. Do you, so when you when you read a lot of these novels and a lot of these works, and a, a lot of them ha kind of harken back to that time, do you think we're living uh, in good times or in bad times comparatively to the past? Oh, my goodness. Um, <clears throat> it cuts both ways. I happen to be... Um, I happened just this past week to have met a beautiful woman in Hungary who got in touch with me. The country Hungary uh, got in touch with me, and we're flirting with each other and making <laughs> dates. I mean, she's 8,000 miles and nine time zones away. Uh, couldn't have done that 20 years ago. On the other hand, uh, we, have this, uh, we have this pandemic and, and some of the political thing, the divisiveness of the country. The polarization politically is, is not very healthy, I think. I'm assuming you're, you're referring to Donald Trump. What do you think about Donald Trump? I know it's a very controversial subject and people usually stay away uh, from talking about it. But what, what do you think? <laughs> I don't think I could um, say on the radio or on your uh, podcast the terms that I would like to use. Okay, I, th I, think, uh, I think I know what you would you like to say. <laughs> It, you know, and that's that actually speaks to to exactly what I mean. It's uh, and what you said earlier, which is, 
It's a very divisive time in America. Absolutely so. I was born at the very beginning of World War II. And I was just a child, so I didn't know what was going on. You know, my father would show up with a fifth helmet or something because he was uh, asked to be a plane spotter. Of course, there never were any planes that flew over the United States and bombed us. But um, sometimes we'd go up in the attic and I guess we listened to President Roosevelt on the radio. Not that I knew what was going on, except there was something exciting about sitting in the dark listening to the radio. Maybe that's another time. Um it's similar to this one, except I was too young to really understand what was happening. I think he's a disgrace. I think he's an embarrassment. I think he's a crook, basically. And everything that he calls his enemies and opponents is actually much more true of him. I mean, the crooked Hillary is ridiculous. It's crooked Donald a hundred times more. Now we have Joe Biden being accused of uh, some kind of sexual uh, molestation. Well... Look at the man in office. He has something like 25 women making accusations like that. And what do you think about Joe Biden? Do you think Joe Biden is a, is competent to, uh, to lead the United States? Well, I worry about just that he seems, even though he's a bit younger than I am, actually, he's a bit older than I am intellectually now. Uh, he seems to be uh, a little slow on the uptake, forgets things, has to correct himself. On the other hand, he has a good heart. And I'm sure he would pick a young vice president so that if anything happens to him because of his health, uh, that woman, apparently it would be a woman, would quickly step in and take over. So we have to hope that his vice presidential choice is a wise one, as I'm sure it will be. And do you think that, because I know you went to Berkeley around the time of the, the free speech movement. Yes. Uh, do, you th do you think the free speech movement has made... American culture better or has complicated things? Mm. I was here. I came out to Berkeley in 1962 and the free speech movement came a couple of years later. I was a graduate student at UC Berkeley at that time. Uh, it cut both ways even at the time because I wasn't appreciative of Ronald Reagan spraying the campus with the uh, Mustard gas, not mustard gas, tear gas, I'm sorry. <laughs> mustard gas. <laughs> mustard gas, I was thinking of that World War One story of mine uh, where her fiancé dies of mustard gas in the fields of France. Yeah, uh, yeah tear gas, uh, which I got to smell. But there were some very exciting things going on. And, and um, I, not too long after that, became a professor and got to see both sides of the desk that way. And it was a time when students got a lot more uh, rights. Uh, the quiet generation, my generation was the quiet generation, but that generation that did those protests uh, developed a lot of power for students. They got to sit in on the Board of Regents, for example. They got to uh, evaluate the professors at the end of every course. That could cut both ways. Sometimes uh, it was more um, emotional than intellectual responses going on there, but I think overall it was a good thing. And there was no looking down on students. They had a voice just as workers are supposed to have a voice in management. I think overall it was progressive and, and, and did many good things. Uh, Berkeley changed not for the better. When I first came out to Berkeley in 1962, it reminded me of Paris. Uh, in the evening, there would be people sitting out on the sidewalks in the cafes and outside the cafes. And there were probably, uh, probably on Telegraph. On Telegraph Avenue is what I was thinking of. 
and um, there were two or three movie theaters up there, and uh, that all went away. I guess with the the street people and the drug people uh, drove the students out of that, and people went back and retreated to their homes. So that part of it wasn't so good. But I don't know that that had anything directly to do with the free speech movement. Maybe it did. Well, maybe it did. I mean, uh, I mean, what, what do you say about the people say similar things about? Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Haight Nashbury area, where it, mm-hmm. where it also brought a lot of the, like you said, street people and drug uh, situation there, and and right. people kind of went back into their homes and hid. Do you think? Do you think that free speech movement or that kind of free love movement from the hippie era kind of invited and opened the door back door to a certain element of society? Well, it brought a counter-lashing, a counter-revolution from the right because um, people like Timothy Leary were saying, tune in, turn on and drop out. And I think that was irresponsible. People were taking LSD as if it were sugar cubes. In fact, they were taking it in sugar cubes sometimes. And um, that put some people in mental hospitals. It it was irresponsible to have um, such, you know, illiberal thoughts about... uh, anything goes i don't know i guess the sexual revolution for the most part was good that was brought on by the birth control pill basically which came out in 1960 i remember that because that was the year i started harvard law school i remember the birth control pill coming out and changing as it turned out uh, the liberation of women immensely you know when i was a boy i used to wonder because Uh, In our writing, we would refer to he and him. We wanted to refer to the human race. And I kept wondering, why aren't the girls protesting against this? And it took 30 years, but they finally did, and now they do. Hmm. Sometimes it's not so elegant. As an editor, you don't always want to have he, she, him, her, you know, dragging through the whole paragraph. Right. And the solution is usually to pluralize and make things they as much as you can. But... um, Hmm. I think uh, the editors have to swallow their pride and go along with the political progress. Yeah, what do you think about the pronouns? Do you, do you incorporate modern pronoun uh, theory or philosophy into your work? Yeah, well, this comes up a lot. Like, what do you do with Latino? Now we have this Latinx concept. Um, African-American or Afro-American or black goes through different phases at different times. Is it hyphenated? Is it not hyphenated? Is it African-American or is it Afro-American with or without the hyphen? The styles change. The preferences change. We have to keep up with those things. So I ha- always work with my clients, you see. So I never put words in, in my clients' mouths. They have to approve every syllable that I suggest. Okay. Most, most editors take a manuscript. They work with it, give it back to the author. The author says, I like this. I don't like that. But I work with the author in real time, now on the computer, exclusively. And before this pandemic, 95% of my clients, 10 years ago, everybody sat next to me at my desk. We're 15 years ago, maybe. But I read their manuscript out loud to them. I make suggestions. I copy edit for mechanical errors. I ask, I ask questions. I make suggestions. And nothing goes in that they don't approve. Now, Paul, someone who's never published a book and who's interested in publishing a book, uh, what are the steps that they must take in order to accomplish that? 
Well, it depends how big an audience they want to reach. If they want to get into a big publishing house, they're going to have to get an agent. Because these days, the publishers are not reading manuscripts that are sent to them directly. At least most of them aren't. They're using the agents as filters. They don't pay the agents. The client doesn't pay the agent. The agent makes his or her money by getting 15% of the royalty. In fact, if they sell the book to a publisher, the publisher sends the royalty checks to the agent. Agent takes out the 15% for himself or herself and passes on a check of 85% to the writer. So that's with the big publishing houses. Of course, you also have medium-sized and small publishing houses, and the revolution is that you have self-publishing. I edited a newsletter at one time for a retirement community out in Walnut Creek called Rossmore, and they had a writer's group, and I edited their newsletter for five or six years, and I got into a concept where every issue, which was once a month, was devoted to a famous author who had self-published. I was amazed how many there were. Mark Twain, Benjamin Franklin, some of the biggest names in writing had at one time or another self-published. And uh, in fact, Mark Twain started his own publishing house because he didn't like the money he was getting from the publishers. And as a publisher, he published the best-selling book of the 19th century, which was the memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant. Yes. And I believe the second book he published was Huckleberry Finn, which I believe was the second best-selling book of the whole 19th century. But anyway, there is self-publishing now with the computer. Uh, a lot of my clients will self-publish, and when we finish with the editorial process, we kick over from Microsoft Word to Adobe InDesign, and I can make your book look like it came out of Random House. Yes. There's nothing we can't do, you know, with the computer now. So, so how long does it take for you to, um, to edit something? Well, that depends on several factors. First of all, how long is the manuscript? That 90-year-old man brought me a 600-page novel. Hmm. Uh, somebody else might bring me a 150-page book on something. So that's one, one factor. Another factor is uh, how much work needs to be done to make the writing good enough for publication. So there's a whole spectrum out there of uh, gifted or non-gifted authors. When people ask me how many pages per hour can you edit, I will tell them that in my experience, it varies anywhere between three and 10 double spaced pages an hour. It depends uh, not only on the quality of the writing, but on how quickly authors respond to my questions and suggestions. Most people are very efficient with that, but once in a while I'll get somebody who agonizes over, should it be wide or should it be broad or should it be tall or should it be high? I'm, I'm giving you a real example from a real person. And she could literally spend hours over questions like that and the clock was ticking, but she could afford it. So those are the factors. The, the, and also how many passes do we do? I prefer, I recommend two what I call the micro edit, the first pass, where you're paying attention to every sentence, every syllable, really. And then you wanna read it more naturally after you've done all that and take a test drive second pass. And some people are more perfectionist, they can have the budget and they'll want more passes than that. So there's no one answer, there's no one size fits all. It's not like McDonald's hamburgers where everything is the same. <laughs> In your opinion, what makes a great book? Oh my goodness. Oh, wow. Well, uh, that's like saying, who are my favorite authors? I guess I'd go back to um, the ones that I chose in college. Um, 
maybe of all time, I'd probably say Franz Kafka. Why is that? I loved his, I loved his imagination. Um, he anticipated fascism and the Holocaust without having uh, lived through it. And uh, he was he was a brilliant. Um, he had a brilliant imagination. So, um, if you ask me, what are the ingredients that go into great writing? I guess there's so many variations on that. I mean, there's there's the novelists who who started out as poets, and and they have beautiful diction and vocabulary, but somebody else may have um, concepts that are just absolutely overwhelming, you know, like George Orwell with 1984. The classic. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful authors out there. And what, what do you think we're living in 1984? Hmm. There are uh, resemblances to it. Uh, I'm amazed with how the big lie, you know, the Nazis said, if you keep repeating a lie over and over again, the people will believe it. Yeah, and that was uh, Joseph Goebbels. Joseph Goebbels, indeed. He did say that. I don't know if it's true or not. I remember Bill Maher once said that Donald Trump used to read, not that he read much, but he used to read the speeches of Adolf Hitler for bedtime reading. <laughs> Do you think that's uh, true? Well, I did see it in one other source. I can't remember where it was, Atlantic or Nation magazine or someplace, so it might well be true. So other than writing and editing and, and dedicating your life to literature, what are, what are other hobbies that you have outside of that? Well, I just mentioned sculpture, which is if you came to my house, you'd have to trip over sculptures all over the floor. <laughs> um, I've always liked photography. My dad was a dentist, and dentists in the old days used to develop their own x-ray, so my dad had an x-ray room and he taught me how to do that kind of developing and fixing with photography black and white so i've always had a love for photography and um i love the theater and film and you know it's amazing i was telling a friend of mine uh, there's a brownie camera that appears in my screenplay from the 1918 story and when i was a boy they still had brownie cameras that looked pretty much like that Wow. So photography, for, at least at the lower level, for kids anyway, and the average person, didn't change that much for about 20 years. Were they, were they uh, point-and-shoot cameras, or were they like uh, 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 Roliflex cameras or Mamiya cameras? I'm talking about the really basic point-and-shoot camera, fixed focus. You didn't focus it. There was no lens. to 35-millimeter? No, it wasn't even 35-millimeter. I don't remember now what the number was. Something like 120. I don't know oh, what that wow. Millimeters, I suppose, um, and of course, back in those days, you you would take the you would wind up the film into a canister and have to take it someplace to be developed, and then you'd get your developed negatives a few days or a week later. Maybe you'd have some positives made. It wasn't like instant photography today. You take the picture in your camera and you've got it, you know, in your in your yeah. phone. I mean, I I love photography, and uh, although I own several digital cameras. Um, when I take photographs with a medium format camera and develop them, I mean, the, the results are impressive. And mm -hmm. it, you, you cannot compare them to digital photography at all, in my opinion. Well, I don't know. You can have a lot of fun with Photoshop. And, and even within design, I, I, I find it. Well, when people self-publish their books, if there's any pictures involved, uh, it's, it's wonderful to be able to marry the text with the pictures 
where you can enlarge up to a point or, right. you know, it or crop it. it. There's a lot of things that haven't changed that much, except that you can do it right away and you don't have to wait a week to get your pictures back. I mean, but uh, if you if you develop your pictures, you could also have them scanned professionally and use them in a digital format for editing and such. Mm -hmm. Well, there was a time, I, I think I was just telling somebody the other day, when the Polaroid was the big thing, you know? Right. In between the old photography and the current photography was the Polaroid, where it was such a hot thing that you would take the picture and, you know, a moment later it would pop out of your camera and there you had it in your hand. I love my Polaroid camera, but of course that's, what, 20 or 30 years ago. What kind of books are the ones that sell the most, do you think? What subjects are they, like self-help books, novels, instructional ones? What do, you, what do you think? Oh, dear. Well, there's all these different markets. If you get a book uh, on, you know, there's these books out there where the agents tell you what they want and how they want you to submit to them. And the agents are divided into categories. I could reach behind me and open one of those books and you'll see, I don't know, about 20 or 30 different categories. And I'm sure there's bestsellers in all of them. So there's things about education, there's things about gender issues, there's things about politics, there's fiction. All those categories have their bestsellers and have their audiences. Right. Paul, it was it was great having you on the show today. Um, I'm really impressed with your background. You're very knowledgeable. And uh, where can people find more information about you? My website is just uh, editor-writer com. You can put three W's and a dot in front of that if you like, but I think it will go to it even without. Paul, thank you again, and have a wonderful day. You too. Nice talking to you.